Can a new inquest in Britain into the deaths of the victims of 9-11 profoundly impact our understanding of the truth of what happened? Is the threat of being called a conspiracy theorist enough to dog sincere investigation in spite of the devotion of 9-11 family members? On what grounds is there justification for questioning the September 11th attacks? What is the price paid by a credible journalist who dares to investigate 9-11 and then runs for political office years later? This week on the Global Research News Hour, as we approach the 20th anniversary of the massive attacks believed to be the work of Al-Qaeda terrorists, we will have a discussion on this program with the unique perspectives of two individuals who have challenged the official explanation in their own ways. In our first half hour, we talk to Matt Campbell, a British national whose brother was a victim. Then in our second half hour, we'll have a talk with journalist Leslie Hughes, whose run for political office in 2008 was derailed by her advocating a truther position. On this week's program, investigating the truth of 9-11, healing the wound, and paying the price. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 10th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of Nahiowak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. A report released last week by Public Health Ontario, or PHO, showed the incidence of heart inflammation following mRNA vaccination was significantly more prevalent in young people. As of August 7th, there were 106 incidents of myocarditis and pericarditis in people under the age of 25 in Ontario, slightly more than half of the total of all such incidents. Toronto Sun reported. There were 31 cases in the 12 to 17 year age group and 75 cases in 18 to 24 year olds. 80% of all cases were in males. The reporting rate of myocarditis, pericarditis, was higher following the second dose of mRNA vaccine than after the first particularly for those receiving the Moderna vaccine as the second dose of the series, regardless of the product for the first dose, the report stated. That comes from the article, 100-plus Ontario youth sent to hospital for vaccine-related heart problems, report shows, by Megan Redshaw, posted September 8th, originally published in Children's Health Defense. As reported in the LA Times, two separate police and firefighters groups have come together to oppose vaccine mandates. Firefighters for Freedom issued a statement on its website noting, quote, Our goal is to stop the mandated 
vaccinations for all city employees as well as the citizens of this great country. We want to bring education and truth to the people without being censored, unquote. The statement further notes that the group believes in, quote, the right to work, free will, personal choice, medical freedoms, and consent without coercion, retaliation threats, disciplinary action, or termination, unquote. That comes from the article, Police Firefighters in L.A. Form Group to Resist Vaccine Mandates, by Steve Watson, posted September 8th, originally published at Summit News. The new South Wales chief health officer made the alarming comments during a recent press conference. We need to get used to being vaccinated with COVID vaccines for the future. I can't see COVID is not going to be with us forever, said Chant said during a press conference last week. As a public health officer, we always want to have diseases go to be totally eliminated, but that is not on the horizon in the near future, she continued. Booster doses and repeat doses will be part of it. I can assure you that the Commonwealth government has purchased large quantities of vaccine into 2022, and this will be a regular cycle of vaccination and revaccination as we learn more about when immunity wanes. That comes from the article, Australia's health chief, Dr. Chant, COVID will be with us forever. People will have to get used to endless booster vaccines. By Paul Joseph Watson, posted September 8th, originally published at Summit News. These brave men and women, all of them are either physicians or PhDs and thus use the title doctor, include Dr. Robert Malone, inventor of the mRNA and DNA vaccine technology, pediatrician Lawrence Palevsky, primary care physician Vladimir Zelenko, former NIAID scientist Judy Mikovich, attorney, physician, and America's frontline doctors founder Simone Gold, family physician Stephen Malthouse, microbiologist Sukarit Bhakti, associate professor of viral immunology Byram Bridal, pediatrician Paul Thomas, cardiologist Richard Fleming, emergency room and family physician Patrick Phillips, pathologist Roger Hutchinson, and former Pfizer chief science officer Mike Yeadon, to name but a few. Each has raised serious concerns about the potential side effects these never-tested or approved or used vaccines may have on human health. And for speaking out, each is being threatened and censored, and worse. Collectively, their apprehensions range from, one, the possible effects that lipid nanoparticles, or LNPs, may be having on the human brain, to, two, how the use of polyethylene glycol, or PEG, may be causing anaphylactoid immune reactions, to, three, how the artificially induced spike proteins that travel throughout the human body may be producing blood clotting displays orders in different parts of the body to four. How these excess spike proteins, which are a neurovascular toxin to the body, may be causing myocarditis or inflammation of the heart muscle in children and young adults. One way medical practitioners are being bullied is through the strong-arm tactics of the agencies that license them to practice. 
That comes from the article, The Pandemic, Our Species is Being Genetically Modified, Our Response, by David Skripak, posted September 7th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Jeffrey Thomas Campbell was one of the 2,977 known victims of the September 11th attacks. The victim's family is upset, like all the other families, only they are turning their attention not towards the war on terrorism. They are demanding a new inquest into his death, not based on the assumption that the impact of the aircraft and the ensuing fires caused this building to collapse. They say the evidence proves the buildings were deliberately demolished using explosives and incendiaries. Whatever one might think of the idea, it should be stated that a substantial number of architects, engineers, and other 9-11 family members share this belief. The Campbell family is submitting the application for a new inquest into Jeffrey's death in order to get a step closer to the truth and come to a place of finally healing after this departure 20 years ago. Matt Campbell, was Jeffrey's brother and is very vocal about the case and, and about how their family came to the position they did. He joins us from his home in Great Britain. Uh, uh, Matt, it's a, it's a pleasure having you on my show. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Now, uh, Jeffrey, tell us about just about the, the traumatic experience of losing a brother as this anniversary is, is headed our way. Um, I mean, it was very uh, traumatic. I mean, you know, looking back, we all certainly suffer from shock. Um, I'd have to correct you, though. His name's Jeff. He absolutely hated Jeffrey. Um, so we, we always called him uh, Jeff, Jeff Thomas Campbell. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, the, the, the day is still vivid. I, I have over the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, recounted exactly what went on, um, you know, where we were and everything. And, and I think the biggest thing that um, I remember is just, at the moment that my brother, Rob, who was in England at the time, who'd just spoken to my brother's fiance, um, sort of blurted out that he was in the tower. I was on a pay phone. I had my mum, my wife and two young children around me. And I remember just dropping the phone um, in, in shock. And at that moment, mum, you know, knew that um, Jeff had gone. Um, so, I mean, you know, I guess after the, the first sort of two or three weeks, I mean, we went over to the States and stuff, but you know, you, you try and get back into normal life. I was still, I think, very much dealing with um, shock. And I, I remember very early in October, uh, I'm not a sort of angry, demanding retribution kind of person, um, but I did, you know, momentarily, um, you know, get very angry and I wanted some sort of, you know, someone to pay for uh, what had happened. But um, I said that, you know, barely a day. And then Later on that month, um, my co-director of my company that I um, had uh, sent me an article by John Pilger, um, who is a, a British journalist who, who wrote for the, um, the Mirror, a newspaper in the UK, um, certainly back in the day when it was a, a decent paper. And, um, and the article was called This War is a Farce. And, you know, he basically went on to, to talk about, you know, what the US and UK were doing bombing Afghanistan, you know, no Al-Qaeda had been killed, um, only innocent, you know, women and children and, and the like. 
and you know and just pause to think what what are we doing you know and you made the point that 15 of the 19 hijackers were saudi and i think up until that point i hadn't really thought about what effectively was being done in my brother's name and um and that started my journey of just looking into not only the circumstance of my brother's death but you know the the events leading up to uh on the day and, and also after um the event um it probably wasn't until um 2007 maybe that i even thought about the manner in which the towers had come down um I mean, it's not that i hadn't looked at tons and tons of footage and researched everything i could but i mean i was primarily um looking for the last images or video of my brother and so i i rarely went past the point of collapse of any of the footage that you know you could obviously by this time find everywhere on the internet um but yeah i mean it was it was basically uh, i guess like a lot of people building seven that just didn't seem right to me i mean it just so happens that i happen to have um three science degrees i've got a bachelor's in mathematical physics i've got a, a, a master's in applied mathematics and also have a second master's in um, scientific application software but you know you didn't i didn't really need any of that to, to see that something was very wrong with building seven and then when um david chandler came out with his analysis at the draft meeting that nist had um in i think it was summer 2008 and pointed out that um you know the towers had come down easily verifiable with you know basic physics toolkits that it had come down at free full acceleration i think at that point um you know i thought hang on a sec there's, there's something going on here and then obviously in the final report nist actually admitted to it didn't really explain how that could be um but that was enough for me to then start i guess turning my attention to how the towers were physically destructed and of course um i then shifted my attention to um both the towers but obviously in particular my brothers but i'd still say it wasn't really until you know, maybe 2009 2010 um that i came to the conclusion they'd been you know um however they fitted in with the attacks they'd actually been demolished um through the use of you know explosives incendiaries um etc so um yeah on, on to <clears throat> the inquest so in the uk when someone dies in suspicious circumstances um whether it be in the uk or abroad um by law we have a an inquest which is a kind of special court it's in a coroner's court and you look into very specifically who the deceased was where they were when they died and essentially how did they come about their death and in the in the case where remains are repatriated from abroad um it again triggers this inquest and so my brother along with nine other British victims had obviously been identified and repatriated back to the UK. So um, they had a joint inquest. So you essentially had 10 inquests together. Um, they were initially adjourned in, I think, 2004, but uh, eventually in January 2013, my brother had uh, his inquest along with nine others. It was all over. I mean, it's, it's astonishing to me. I didn't attend. Uh, as did most family members, actually. I think only two victims were represented. Um, the whole in inquest into 10 people uh, lasted about an hour and 45. And my brother's death and life and death was dealt with in about three, three four minutes. Um, and, and I'm not blaming the, the coroner. You know, she could only deal with what was presented to her by the Metropolitan Police, the counterterrorism 
um, officer who had prepared a report. And, you know, and they admitted that they drew heavily on from the um, 9-11 Commission and um, the FBI and, and other, um, you know, official sources. So the verdict they gave was, you know, as you described at the start, you know, the official narrative and, and that was it. And coincidentally, although it's not actually, you know, I guess, the reason why I'm here right now, uh, with my brother's um, inquest potentially being reopened, but my brother had some further remains identified after the inquest uh, in May 2013. And it just got me thinking, you know, I wonder if I repat repatriated those back into the UK. This is like probably 2014, 2015, I was thinking this. What if I repatriated his remains back here? Would that trigger a fresh inquest and I would you know be in a position or try and garner that evidence that was not um uh, submitted at the first inquest and you know would it be possible to create my brother's inquest and so I guess the seed was was sown there and and you know um it's been a long process and we had to raise a fair bit of money um which I did through um architects engineers and, and their supporters architect engineers for 9-11 truth I should say and their supporters and um over the last sort of 15 months um been working with uh, a barrister in the UK and on the 26th of August this year um we submitted a two and a half thousand page uh, application um to the attorney general um, it also includes you know approaching double figures of of video footage uh, as well but um and that bundle contains you know, not only evidence of explosives and incendiaries being used, but we have expert statements, we have eyewitness statements from um, first responders, you know, many of whom were, you know, a police officer, firefighter, you know, that kind of thing, who 20 years ago were witnesses and made statements to the explosions and other things that they um, heard and saw going off and are prepared 20 years to, under oath, be cross-examined in a, a court. Um, should we get this back into a coroner's court? I also have um, letters of support from both US and UK victim family members, uh, as well as obviously our own statements uh, we've provided as a family. That's my mum, my dad, my brother, Robin, and myself and, and Jeff's um, fiance, Caroline. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've put this bundle in, this application in, and the way it works in the UK is we, we have... Um, a mechanism through the 1988 Coroner's Act, which allows um, a petition or an application like this to be submitted to the Attorney General. And by the way, it's the Attorney General in the UK, not, not in the US. Um, it, it provides a mechanism whereby, whether through um, an insufficiency of inquiry, which we can absolutely demonstrate, uh, whether through new evidence or evidence that was not submitted at the first inquest, and again, we've got bundles of that, um, we can put forward the arguments that there needs to be uh, the first inquest needs to be quashed and a fresh inquest needs to be opened. And so that's what that's what we've done. OK, so that basically, I mean, you, you, we hear about the, the 9-11 Commission, the, the famous one that was actually uh, brought about by uh, a lot of 9-11 families uh, pushed for it and they ended up with it. But it, it was uh, well, it, it's something. It's got some flaws in it, and uh, it, it it basically puts out the the official story. It is the official story, but you're saying that uh, that you you can set up a new inquest 
that would not only uh, you know cause us to rethink your own inquest, but uh, your original inquest, but also the the nine eleven commission, if if I'm not mistaken. Well, um, strict, strictly speaking, the I mean the nine eleven commission didn't deal at all with the way in which the towers came down, um, and and oddly enough, you know, um, and it's one of the frustrations, I guess. Um, that I have is the NIST report into the collapse of the towers stopped short of the actual collapse. It only went up to collapse initiation. Um, so, you know, there isn't actually um, an official explanation as to how those towers came down. Um, and so it's it's because the inquest, as I said, is very limited in scope. It's looking at how my brother died. Um, and so the argument we're putting forward in terms in, in terms of lots of evidence and demonstrating that there was an insufficiency of inquiry, um, we are calling for a new inquest that is only specifically going to look at the manner of death, which essentially is, you know, we believe and we have evidence to support that the towers are brought down by explosives and incendiaries. Um, it, it, it actually has nothing to do really with the 9-11 commission okay. per se. Yeah. yeah. Now, with the way the media works and all the politicians, <clears throat> I mean, they're they're saying that these that this this view uh, that, that you have uh, is uh, is a conspiracy theory, and, and that maybe you know the conspiracy theorists are, are telling lies, uh, like the idea that Elvis is still alive or, or something like that. Um, I, I, I was wondering, as, as you were learning this information, I mean, did 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 it, it was it rather difficult? Did it ever occur to you that maybe someone was just trying to, to mislead you. Um, do you mean in terms of what I was reading or the fact that people were perhaps saying that to me? The cons- yeah, well, I mean, just saying that, uh, I mean, even though you may have, I mean, like magician tricks, you know, you, you, people might believe something, but actually somebody's just, you know, kind of horsing around with, with uh, whatever facts or, or what have you. And I, I was wondering, you know, because this is the kind of uh, aspect that uh, uh, a defender of the official story would have, you know, that can't possibly be right. I mean, yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about. No, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I would say conspiracy theory is just, it's just a really lazy way of not engaging any um, sensible debate. And and you know, I said to to bring it around to what we're doing here. You know, we're not messing around. It's cost a lot of money and it's taken a lot of effort. And you know, this is raking up you know memories for all of us as family members. This is pure and simply, you know, at my brother's inquest. Um, None of this evidence was put forward. We know that there was very little investigation and inquiry into how my brother actually came about his death. And an inquest, you know, if you want to think of them really simply, they are fact-finding inquiries. Yeah. And so the coroner and, you know, the team in the inquest should have everything available for them to look at to then make a ruling on what they believed um, caused the deceased to come about his or her death. And so, you know, what all we're asking for as a family is for this evidence to be reconsidered, or sorry, considered for the first time in a fresh inquest, um, you know, which was not done at the first inquest. Well, with that in mind- it, so I'll, I'll go back to it, it was, it was over and done in, you know, one hour 45 for 10 victims is, you know, it's, it's rather incredible when you, you sort of look back and think about that. Yeah. Um, so how, what kind of treatment do you get from other 9-11 victims' families? Because I know once when I was you know, sort of holding up a sign saying 9-11 is an inside job and then 
this person got really angry at me, you know, and, uh, you know, basically the idea, and this is a, a general feeling that, you know, by saying that the, 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 the official story is false, you're going to get the, uh, a, a lot of negative attention from 9-11 victims' families. But uh, as, as a 9-11 victim family yourself, uh, how do you get along with other people who uh, are, are victim, who are families of a 9-11 <clears throat> victim, but who don't agree with you that, uh, that this manner in which your, your son was died was uh, uh, the way you describe it? Um, well, I mean, I've got mixed responses um, from the family members that I've um, spoken to. So like I said, we do have support from both US and um, UK families. Um, some UK victim um, family members do privately support me, but they don't want to actually go on record, um, you know, in, in a letter of support to the Attorney General, which I mean, I, I understand, you know, it's not an easy thing um, to do, whether you've got the, the badge of, you know, CTs against it or not, you know, you are you're putting yourself out there to challenge whatever's already been ruled in court. But like I said, this is a, a mechanism that's open to, to um, people in the UK. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's used routinely, but, you know, under this same mechanism, if you're familiar with things like Hillsborough uh, and uh, Bloody Sunday, these were the mechanisms that we used. Um, you know, uh, it's, it, it's, it's mixed. And, and most of the time, to be honest, Michael, it's just, you know, people haven't looked at stuff. Um, and that, that's, you know, is often the way. And like I said, if you actually just label me or anyone else as a conspiracy theorist without actually doing any of the research or certainly, you know, to the level of getting it into a court, it's just lazy. You, you just don't want to engage. How are you treated by the press? Um, that's, it's, well, it's yet to be seen. I mean, I've had quite a few articles that are, um, I'd say, possibly... Um, some are in favour, some not so. It really, it really depends. But it's been, it's been pretty good actually overall. Um, and I think, to be fair, you know, the whole inquest route is is giving it a, a level of um, seriousness that at least warrants a little bit of respect um, in, in the press. Um, you know, the editorial headlines might still be um, disparaging of what we're trying to do, but um, you know, ultimately, I, I have every confidence this is going to get into court. Um, that the threshold uh, which we have to cross in order to, to get the authority granted by the uh, Attorney General is, well, we're well over it. Let's put it that way. We, we only need to show that evidence not considered at the first inquest and obviously insufficiency of inquiry may lead to a new verdict. Um, we, because it is, like I said, a fact-finding mission, that's what inquests are, um, we don't need to show that that change of verdict is likely at this stage. You know, even though we, we have all that evidence there, the, the key thing that the Attorney General is looking at is, um, you know, will this, can this new evidence not considered? The other arguments put forward, can it, may it lead to a new verdict? And, and we overwhelmingly believe that's the case. And that's, you know, why the barrister um, has put the application together. Um, you know, I, I first spoke to him five, six years ago and he said, you know, you just need to to get everything together, get everything lined up and you've got a strong case here, which is what we've put forward. Um, would you care to do it in the last minute or so? Uh, I'd just like to ask you uh, how you intend 
you and your family intend to mark the 20th anniversary of your brother's death on Saturday? I mean, anniversary is a strange term. It's it should be more like memorial, I guess, because it's it's something you, you associate with with um with you know good times. Uh, it's a term I use as well. Um, we're all doing our own thing actually. Dad's doing a usual thing. He walks up the mountains in the Welsh the mountains in the Rinogs. Uh, my mum and my brother Rob are going to a a short service in London, and um, I'll be doing my own thing all weekend just to kind of stay away from all the madness of, of tv and media and stuff so um that's that's my plan and just quietly remember my brother you know he was a great bloke and you know he's sadly not with us well matt i i feel you the loss of your brother uh for all the 9-11 victims including those who died in the two wars that followed uh, so uh, i i'll just say you know my condolences and uh, take good care and, and thank you for presenting on the global research news hour Thank you, Mike. You're welcome. We've been speaking with Matt Campbell. He's a brother of a 9-11 victim and demanding an inquest, a new inquest into his death. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Leslie Hughes is an award-winning journalist and broadcaster. She's interviewed some of the world's most fascinating people, including social activists, thinkers, writers, celebrities, and pivotal political figures. She's received a number of awards and, awards and honors, including uh, Best Interviewer for the CBC by Winnipeg Actra, the CBC Manitoba's nominee for the President Award, Manitoba Community Newspaper Association Columnist of the Year, now, in 2008, she ran as a candidate in Winnipeg for the riding of Kildonan St. Paul, but her party, the Liberals, dropped her on account of allegations made by the blogger Blackrod, identifying her in an article she wrote in 2002 as an anti-Semitic 9-11 conspiracy theorist. She had this charge challenged in court and won the case. However, 13 years later, when you punch her name and city in a Google search, most of what you still get is a flurry of articles and blogs, including the invisible black rod talking about the anti-Semitic allegations, uh, which are now disproven. She's written a book about her story and, and what it implies for journalists generally who go a little too far in their search for the truth. It's called The Dead Candidates Report, a memoir, and she joins us now. Leslie Hughes, we're delighted to have you back on the Global Research News Hour. Oh, just sorry, your your your, your microphone's still on. Okay, yeah. can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Michael, thank you for that extravagant introduction. <laughs> um, it's wonderful to be talking to you again, for sure. Yeah, well, it's nice, nice to have you back and, and on the air. Um, you were active in journalism about 20 years ago, and, and uh, this was a, a time when some of us were asking questions about the 9-11 attacks. I would like to know how you got involved. What, what sorts of research were you doing that, uh, unlike most journalists, be, made you start to question the official narrative. Do you remember that at all? Well, the thing is that as, as a journalist, 
the expression, the official story is a red flag for one thing, or at least it ought to be. Um, and I wanted, I want in, in this book, for example, and previously, I want to encourage people always to question official stories because they're often designed with a specific purpose in mind. And you have to start by trying to figure out what that purpose might be. Um, an official story can um, take the shape of a false flag operation, for example, um, something that is not uncommon in history. You don't have to talk about this theoretically. And so the official story is always questionable. And that was, that's where I started, particularly because I saw that the media response to the um, event was so homogenous. It was seamlessly focused on victims and rightfully sympathetic to victims, but the coverage stopped there. And I felt it needed to go into a larger context. Um, my reaction and the reaction to anybody like me uh, was, was based on a, a, the kind of a shock of readers, listeners, and viewers who were just weren't up to speed on the international geopolitical factors at play. Right? So to question anything in this situation was considered to be cold-hearted, cold-blooded, cold, etc. Oh, wow. Um, and there were a lot of sources putting out this information on the internet. Um, and and they, were, they were printing up skeptical views of the uh, official story. What was the first piece of evidence that, that you came across that you in, in, in particular found compelling? For me, it was um, the work of Michael Rupert. I'm sure that you remember him. He's a former LA cop who was driven into journalism after the legitimate work that he was trying to do around uh, drugs in the United States. Um, he was driven to do this work because nobody else was trying to uncover it. He was an extremely courageous journalist with, uh, who paid great attention to detail. And uh, he made a, a very quick video um, a, a, titled something like The Truth About 9-11, right? Which caught my curiosity. And in it, he gave us the, the, what we call the wholesale view of the politics involved. There are these two levels of politics, the retail, which is for everybody, i.e. official stories, and then the uh, wholesale, which is the insider's story. For example, uh, retail in, in retail terms, wars are fought over values, whereas in fact, we know they're never fought over values. They're fought over property rights, over resources, um, over specific incidents, but that's the difference between retail and wholesale um, coverage of, of something like this. So Michael Rupert made this brilliant video in which he connected these events of September 11th to the drive for access to oil and drugs in, in uh, the Middle East. 
Uh, that's a, a nasty interpretation, but his evidence was overwhelming. He was able to connect the failure of negotiations over drugs and oil to this ultimate event. So it was Michael Rupert's attention to detail. He had um, a website called From the Wilderness, and he wrote a wonderful book called Crossing the Rubicon, which I think is probably a, a classic with overwhelming scholarship um, uh, investigating all the issues at play on September 11th. So he's the guy. Yeah. Uh, how did you decide, like, the, the sources that are that are not quite uh, the same thing, you know? Like, there's some suggestions out there that uh, maybe is not accurate or not even possibly true. And in fact, what, what's just plain hogwash. Did you have any understanding at that time about, you know, the good stuff and the, the not so good stuff and the horrible stuff? You know... I should also mention, by the way, that Barry Zwicker was an influence here. Barry Zwicker was a, a prominent and a very credentialed journalist in Canada. First in the world to, to broadcast on the airwaves. Sure. Oh, yes, exactly. And again, like Michael Rupert, very big on details that other people consider inconsequential, right? So, uh, and certainly uh, Barry's work was uh, a, a source for me. But in terms of making a decision, you know, <laughs> it wasn't possible to make a decision. It was the fact that a decision had been made for us by the authorities, the American authorities, that was so grating to me. You know, you asked the right question. How do you make a decision? It takes evidence. It takes time. It takes debate. It takes exposure of, uh, of data. We didn't have any of that. We had a decision about who did what and when and why. And we were just supposed to swallow it, right? Which is never, never a good idea. Um, my, uh, my mentor in journalism is uh, that little kid in the emperor's new clothes. Do you remember that little kid who said, hey, the emperor, he, he's naked or something like that. He's not wearing any clothes, whereas everybody else had gone along with the idea that he was very nicely turned out. So there was no decision. There was only weighing influence. And think about it. 20 years later, we have a still an intense debate about what really happened. The thing is that one side of the debate doesn't get any action and that is the side that continues to question exactly the origins of 9-11. Uh, uh, the, the, the sentiments you were expressing at the out you know right at the beginning uh, uh, about the purpose of, of journalism and questioning and yet uh, I found that uh, there was a lot a great deal of reluctance among the mainstream uh, media uh, in embracing critical perspectives. And, and I'm wondering in, in your relations on the scene, like what, what do you, what, what are your thoughts about what drove those journalists to just reject these critical perspectives outright? Well, I have to say, I understand um, their attitude. It's, it's, it can be very dangerous to question what is a universally popular idea. There's a lot of pressure just to look the other way, close your eyes and ears, 
behave yourself and report what you can get your hands on. And what you can get your hands on in a situation like, like 9-11 is extremely limited because it's all secrecy. It is, secrecy is the essence of um, intelligence work, right? When you said pressure, you're talking about from their higher ups? Uh, yeah, I, and of course, peer pressure that you don't want to step out of line and you certainly don't want to be red circled as uh, an uncooperative um, journalist. That's not, that's not, these are not co career forward moves, right? So you, so then a lot of stories are, are just shifted automatically into the alternative realm, which some people would say is where they belong, right? That means you really have to go out of your way to get information that is a little too dangerous to handle by mainstream. So um, I can I can understand that that a lot of very good journalists uh, would just say, "Look, I got lots of other work to do. I'll just leave this alone and I'll check in when it's all settled." But twenty years later, it's still not settled. <laughs> Now, um, so in 2008, uh, you ran for the Liberal Party in, in that election. And uh, I believe you were, you were at the time, you were considered a star candidate, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I, mm. I read your credential or partial, I'm not even sure it's complete. Um, so what undid you is an article you wrote in 2002 I want you to tell us a little bit, or, or what was the line, or what was the, the statement, or the thought in that article that, that ended up getting you in trouble and forced you, or ended up pushing you out of the Liberal Party? Well, it was uh, two awkwardly juxtaposed sentences, um, which were seized upon to, uh, for uh, an assassination, if you want. What I had pointed out was that um, many organizations had claimed to have warned the Americans in advance of the uh, of uh, September 11th, and these were their claims, not mine. But this was kind of viewed as uh, um, making a, as if I were making a false claim that Israel had foreknowledge and was therefore guilty uh, of these attacks, which was not the case at all. Um, and I had also mentioned that some Israeli businesses had left the towers, which in fact they did, um, a week before the events and that they had broken their leases to do that. And now, the, an, ex, uh, an acceptable reason was given to explain that much later. Um, but in the meantime, the next sentence said that 3,000 Americans were not so lucky as, as the previous tenants who had vacated. And, and this was interpreted by an anonymous blogger as saying that the Israeli tenants knew the truth and looked after themselves, vacated the towers, and left everybody else to die, which was not at all um, what I intended. Now, in, in journalism, we are told an opinion is not a story. It has to be much more than an opinion. But this opinion took off 
and attracted the attention of just a handful of media in uh, in Toronto, which is the media hub of Canada, of course. And so uh, the first thing we knew, the, the the liberals were being pressured to get rid of me for having allegedly said this. And I was uh, a conspiracy monger and an anti-Semite. And so uh, nobody wants a candidate like that. It was a no-brainer. I was uh, I was gone 24 hours after I had been nominated. And um, the, what really great about this is the idea of this uh, anonymous blogger with a completely uninvestigated spin, uh, which became a life-changing event for me and for the Liberal Party as well. Uh, they did, in fact, give me the boot as required. Yeah, uh, and on, on that topic, I mean, I know that uh, it's it's like on some occasions you seem uh, anonymous people as being a, a critical source. For example, uh, famously uh, with the uh, Bernstein and Woodward going after Watergate, that that relied very heavily on an anonymous uh, person. I, I'm wondering if if you can you know sort of show how this anonymous blogger is is somehow much more of a a concern than uh, you know. Because you know you, you can't just say well because he's anonymous that he's just uh, you know no good because there are circumstances where it is required so you just sort of straighten that out a little bit. Well, he was not only anonymous but inflammatory and mistaken. Now we don't always know that about an anonymous source. Anonymous sources can be very valuable, and they need to be protected given what happens to a lot of whistleblowers in our times, we need to be very, very cautious. But there was, the, the timing here was peculiar. He had, he had read this article that I had written six years previously. It annoyed him, he kept it, and he introduced it in uh, the day after the nominations closed in my writing. In other words, what was achieved was that as a result of his work, there would be no liberal candidate in that writing. And that was a big achievement right there. It eliminated, eliminated uh, competition for the conservatives. The other thing is that there, this is not the only time this has happened. It, 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 you have an anonymous blogger who intercedes on behalf of a special interest or advocacy group and the connections are not investigated, right? Yeah. And th this is where we let ourselves down. But I certainly agree with you that we need to be very, very cautious about anonymous sources. So um, could you talk about uh, your, your legal case? I mean, what aspects of the... Uh, of the case departed from your expectations uh, of the way it, it should have been handled? Was it uh, um, because, I mean, you, you went into it with a certain ex set of ex expectations, I mean, and, and you ended up winning. Um, what may have departed from your anticipation? Well, a, a visit to the legal system is like a visit to the asylum the old fashioned asylum, which we all hope doesn't exist anymore, but we think it does. 
you have to be prepared that when you ask the law for a remedy for some um, destructive act against you, that you will be put on trial. You have to face the fact. In fact, my friends in the legal system before I started the case, uh, which was a defamation suit, right, said, look, uh, doing this is like um, facing uh, a firing squad after a drowning. Are you sure that you want to do that? And you know what? That was a really apt metaphor, and it is for anyone. It shouldn't be as harsh and expensive and unpredictable as it is, but as the saying goes, it is what it is. And uh, in this case, I actually won my case against the defendants, but I was defeated by the legal system because it was beyond reach financially. I took it as far as I could. And I was grateful to get an, well, not an apology. That word was not acceptable. I, was, I got a correction, a retraction of the charges against me, which I think has gone some way to rehabilitating my reputation as a journalist and, and as a person. But the, and another interesting thing was that although I faced this legal process successfully, uh, when we launched the accurate ending of the whole story, the media generally refused to carry it. They just declined to carry it. They just kind of let it go. Now, I knew that this happens in media, and I have coached people in media skills, and I warned people about this, but this was different <laughs> when it happens to you. As Margaret Atwood says, you, you don't think the sky is falling until a piece of it falls right on your head. You know, so in this case, I won, except I was defeated by the legal system. And then with the truth, I couldn't get the truth uh, out there. And I was, I was so, what is the word I can't, what is the word? Frustrated, I guess, um, by this result that I actually followed up on all of the sources that refused to carry the information about my uh, vindication. I followed it all up. And which is very tedious, especially in the dead of winter. And, uh, and, and what I found essentially was people um, um, don't want to make that kind of a correction generally. And certainly they don't want to make a correction that is not favorable to a powerful group whose cooperation they need and we'll need it in, on future occasions. And so I say in, in my book, in the Dead Candidates Report, in the end, my whole story was like Monty Python's dead parrot. You remember that skit? Yes, where a salesman yes. tries to convince a customer that the parrot that he bought is living, even though the parrot's clearly dead, and there is no bringing it back. It is dead. It is gone, right? Nothing we can do. And that's where my story ends, except that. Um, we now have uh, an incident like this, a smear campaign, a defamation suit that you can follow from beginning to end and know how to watch it in future. Know what you're looking at if you see this again. And Michael, you will see this again. You will see candidates who are, you know, dismissed and disgraced and, and sideswiped um, without 
without reasonable evidence. But I hope that that my my experience will help people see that kind of thing for what it is. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I was. I mean, I was wondering because I, I haven't read the book yet. But I'm wondering. I mean, do you talk about the on the personal level? I mean, how how deeply was your reputation hurt by this uh, th this whole fiasco? Uh, how did it affect you not only journalistically but day to day? Well, the thing is. The only currency a journalist has is credibility, right? If you haven't got that, you have nothing. And you spend your career building your credibility so that people can trust you. And then suddenly it looks as if you've been fooling them all this time. You've been making a fool of them, um, that you are not you know, who you said you were, and you can't be relied upon to do what you said you will do in terms of covering stories, getting interviews and, and all the rest of it. So it was, I could, I could give you one example. Um, I, I wanted to find a lawyer to represent me. And I, I phoned a, a prominent lawyer in time, uh, at the time, and he was very happy, very excited, very pleasant. And he said he would pass this on and get back to me. Well, the next day he called me back to tell me that the senior partners in the firm thought it would be bad for business to be associated uh, with this case. And he was, he was very sincerely, you know, apologizing for that fact. And I'm talking about Brian Bowman, who subsequently became the mayor of Winnipeg and still is you know, who worked for a firm that would normally love the pub publicity of a high profile case, but not this one. <laughs> you see, so, and this is, this is um, one of the many things that I'm thinking about. Do you know of, of similar journalists who, who shared your views about 9-11, uh, uh, either established or up and coming, uh, who, who did not speak up apparently for, for fear of punishment? No one who would want to be identified. Well, I wouldn't ask you to identify them, but uh, right, but it would be um, privately, right? There, there, you know, some of my uh, very few, but at least some of my colleagues uh, were willing to consider the big picture. That is to say, the official story plus all the information that has come up from citizens inquiries and scholarly work. And it is really an amazing body, body of work that's available now that, that questions things that previously were given as fact. I, I, I suppose that it won't be until uh, the information is, is officially revealed and declassified that we'll, we'll know the big picture. And of course, if you think about the Kennedy assassination in 1963, that has the same status as the 9-11 as the uh, decision. You've got an, a huge unanswered question hovering over the population. And very few journalists, as I said, I had a, two or three colleagues who, who would say, Oh yeah, you know we should be we should be looking at at the big picture here, but but we're not, right? 
So like, I honestly can't think of anyone um, who was decimated to the level that I was. And, And you asked about the everyday experience and it was wretched. It was wretched. Um, and I hope that people will follow this defamation journey and see what is it like when we do this to people? Because the subsequent shunning is uh, never leaves you. It just doesn't, doesn't leave you, even though you've technically you've won. You know, I hope I've answered your question. Just tell us anything you can about the book. Well, I'd like to say it's the hardest thing I've ever done. And I've, <laughs> I've delivered two children. So that'll give you an idea <laughs> of how, oh my God, backbreaking work. Um, yeah. but, but worth it. You know, I just remind myself, this has not been documented. This experience is not candidly available to people. The, my book, uh, The Dead Candidates Report, is dedicated to journalists who insist on uncovering the truth and who fight for it until it's available to everybody. That is the work of, of journalism. And that's what kept, that's what actually kept me going. Um, it's available in the usual uh, style these days as an ebook or as a soft cover book, print on demand, and will be available as an audio book uh, as well shortly. And uh, it's available on Amazon uh, on September 11th. That's just a little bit of poetic justice from me. <laughs> a little bit of poetic justice. And um, it's an easy read. It's, uh, um, it's, it's, it's a columnist's book, not a professor's professorial book. Columns, as you know, are a very, a very disciplined form of writing. And so it's like, it's like reading... Um, 14 magazine articles of the average feature length. Uh, And you can pick it up, put it down, pick it up. But I'm hoping people will pick it up and not put it down, of course. The last chapter quotes Amy Goodman, who said, along with her brother, um, go where the silence is and say something, right? So I'm hoping that it will it will remind Canadians that our rights and freedoms are very, very fragile. What happened to me could happen to anyone in our climate, anyone. And I'm hoping that people will feel informed and, and uh, prepared uh, if they can read this book. Leslie Hughes, thank you so much for joining us on the uh, Global Research News Hour. It's been a pleasure having you. Oh my God, it's my pleasure completely. And. Uh, I look forward to many, many more conversations. We've been speaking with the award-winning journalist and broadcaster Leslie Hughes. Her book, The Dead Candidates Report, a memoir, is available online on Amazon tomorrow, September 11th, 2021. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.